Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Timothy Steele II. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we come together to take a look at the readings, the upcoming readings for the Sunday Divine Service, to help prepare the individual for worship, to help prepare preachers as they are contemplating these texts and uh, putting together their sermons. It's uh, it's a great joy as we uh, have this opportunity. It's a great joy for us as a people of God. It's a great joy for us as a congregation, and uh, quite frankly, it's a it's a great bonding experience for the pastors and the vicar as well as we study God's word together. Today we're going to be looking at the 14th Sunday after Trinity. It's uh, this this Sunday has always seemed like kind of an odd choice with regard to the readings and uh, we'll we'll make some sense of that I guess we can we can never be encouraged to give thanks too much but we do have kind of a thanksgiving feel a thanksgiving flavor to our text for today the gospel reading for the 14th Sunday after Trinity familiar one great Sunday school story one that you will hear again at Thanksgiving time Luke 17, 11 to 19. Vicar, take it away. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. All right, so after hearing this text, we'll be starting our faith healing services next Sunday at Good Shepherd. Um, Benny Hinn will have nothing on us. Uh, Pastor Moline, will you be in charge of that? Yeah, definitely. I am looking forward to whacking people in the forehead to uh, take away their sins, or however <laughs> Benny Hen does it. Depend, <clears throat> depending on the day, I would even pay to do that. But uh, <laughs> surely we digress. Um that is, uh, that's not what's going on here. Maybe, maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, some of the nonsense that goes on in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity, with regard to these uh, faith healing type ministries or worship services that are out there. Uh, on the way to Jerusalem, this is the Gospel of Luke. On the way to Jerusalem is uh, pretty important, pretty significant. What am I talking about, Pastor? Well, in Luke, um, we have, I think, a chapter 9, a place where Jesus sets his eyes to go to Jerusalem, and uh, the whole rest of the, the, 
uh, book is Jesus taking step by step towards the cross to forgive people their sins by bleeding, dying, and rising from the dead. And uh, so this is just kind of a remembrance that that is where Jesus is going and uh, uh, getting us ready because not long after this is where Jesus finally does arrive. Why Jerusalem? What's the point? Well, Jerusalem is the uh, capital of ancient Israel, um, and when I say that, I mean in the time of the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel, of uh, Judah, is centered there in Jerusalem. It's the city of David. It had the tomb of the kings uh, from the Old Testament times. It is also the religious center as well, where the temple is built and all the sacrifices occur, uh, and uh, because the temple's there too, the priesthood is all located there, and so... Um, we have the idea also in the Old Testament that the prophets did a lot of their preaching and proclaiming there, Jeremiah, Isaiah, whatnot. And so we see prophets, priests, and kings centered in the area of Jerusalem. Jesus, of course, uh, fulfills all three of those offices, and he's headed there as well. Okay, so Jesus has his face resolutely set toward Jerusalem. Uh, he knows what awaits him there, and he continues his journey. He is passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Pastor, you're our uh, resident geological, geographical, historical expert. So um, tell us a little bit about this path that he's taking. Yeah, um, the path is, um, what he's doing is he's heading from the western side of the Sea of Galilee um, down to the Jordan River Valley, because that's the easiest way then to go north-south in ancient Israel. Um, there's a area that uh, uh, kind of corresponds today with, uh, I, I believe we call it the West Bank area of Israel, uh, that um, north of Jerusalem, that is essentially where Samaria would have been. Uh, and then up around the Sea of Galilee, between uh, Haifa and the Sea of Galilee would be the general area of where the region of Galilee would have been. And so he's going uh, basically from Nazareth area to the east down to the Jordan River Valley to head down the Jordan River Valley uh, to the area of Jericho and then go up a road into Jerusalem. And so we can actually trace the path of Jesus in this journey as well. Samaria. Why is that significant? Samaria would be the capital of the northern kingdom in the ancient time. Uh, would, that'd be the city that's located there. And then uh, the area around there was, of course, destroyed by the Assyrians uh, in the 700s BC. And the people of Israel there who were of any import were um, vanished, if you will, uh, either by slavery or by death. Uh, we don't have any idea where they went. But um, there were the poorest of the poor that were left living in the land, and they ended up uh, intermarrying with the Assyrians and uh, still kind of upholding some of the religious precepts of ancient Israel. Um, even up to this day, they still, for example, practice the Passover by slaughtering sheep and goats and roasting them whole over the fire. And so these Samaritans, uh, Samaritans, whoo, Samaritans still live in that area at the time of Jesus, and uh, so they're kind of an awkward situation where they practice similar religious practices, but they are not uh, pure-blood Jewish people, which was a big deal back in that time. So they're, uh, they're looked down upon, they're kind of the dregs of society, and Jesus uses the Samaritan example in several uh, places, and I don't—I don't mean that in a negative way that he's using these people, but uh, 
the Samaritan situation, the Samaritan people are oftentimes highlighted by Jesus to teach us something. And that's what's going on in this text as well. Ten lepers are lepers are healed. Only one returns. Thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Right. Uh, so it, it would, it's outside the normal what you would conceive would actually happen. It'd kind of be like saying uh, a Canadian who doesn't like hockey in the same way that this Samaritan is actually the one who comes to faith and believes in Jesus. It's it's unexpected. A Nebraskan who doesn't like the Huskers. You know, you can you can do that quite a bit. We uh, we come across this anti-Samaritan. Uh, bias, prejudice, wherever you want to call it, in uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan as well. Yes, and uh, so this is this is a fairly common theme. Um, he was met; Jesus was met by ten lepers. Now, this is not a parable. This is uh, this is uh, not any kind of hyperbole. This is an actual event, uh, a miraculous healing that's coming. He's met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. See, this social distancing is nothing new, is it? Uh, except it's not healthy people who are socially distancing. It is sick people who are socially distancing from others. I'm, I'm right. Yeah, uh, and that was part of the purity laws um, uh, that existed at the time where uh, when you were sick with the disease, you separated yourself from society so society could keep on functioning in no- a normal way. And part of it was that you would actually, someone was coming towards you, you'd yell out uh, to keep them away from you so that they didn't... Um, infect themselves or make themselves ceremonially unclean by coming too close to you. Uh, and there was even leper villages that existed as well. In the movie Ben-Hur, yes. we have a, uh, uh, and, and again, Pastor, you'd have to help me out on this. I don't know how historically accurate this is, but the uh, leper colony there, the people are living kind of in caves. They are completely separated by uh, quite a distance from the normal population of the city. There's no uh, contact with the people. Food is lowered down by ropes into this uh, particular area. And uh, there is a um, very, very much of a quarantine, fear, panic kind of a thing attached with leprosy. What can you tell us about this? uh, You know, you look at the footnote in many of our English translations, and it will say something like, we really don't know what kind of disease this is, but it was a really bad skin disease. So what can you tell us about leprosy? Right. I mean, there's many diseases that technically qualify in the ancient description, but none of them are particularly good. The one that uh, we call leprosy today, which actually is a big issue in the United States because armadillos all carry it now. Um, It somehow got introduced to them and they're able to bear it in their bodies and they can pass it to human beings. Uh, But uh, it is a disease where it causes lesions and welts uh, on the outside that causes damage to the nerves as well, which results in a lack of ability to feel pain uh, pain and uh, can cause uh, unnoticed wounds and infections, uh, things like that to take place, which is you know, the idea that people have their hands bandaged and whatnot, that's where that comes from. Their nerves don't work as well as they should any longer either. And so uh, whatever the case is, it is something that um, caused you to be cast out of society in the ancient world and separated and uh, unclean in the ceremonial sense for religious worship and, and things like that. And so it was a big deal in the ancient world 
common not just in ancient Israel but across the entire uh, world that existed at that time. I've been told that leprosy is not all that contagious and that the people here were uh, overreacting, that it is generally caused by a a vitamin or dietary (coughs) deficiency. What can you tell us about that, Pastor? Well, uh, it's, it's caused by microbacteria. Uh, I think the technical name of it is um, lepromatosis. Uh, and uh, it, it is something that can be spread by close contact, but it's not like if you walked by the person that you would probably catch it. You, you, um, boy, I don't know how many modern parallels to make. It's not as deadly contagious as maybe it's depicted in the movies like Ben-Hur and whatnot, but it is something that you can spread and pass along to other people. Okay, and last question about leprosy. A lot of times in the movies you see people that are grossly disfigured with their face, their nose is gone, their mouth is disfigured, their ears are gone, parts of their hands or feet are gone. Is that accurate? It can be, and that springs then not necessarily from the disease of leprosy, but from the nerve damage that prevents you from feeling, um, I don't know how to say this, feeling pain is actually a good thing that God has made your body able to do, so that when you touch the hot stove, you realize that it's burning you and you move your hand away from it. If your nerves are damaged, as happens in leprosy, you don't notice that as quickly and the damage is greater. Um, There's a a case that I know of in the United States of a young girl who was unable to feel pain and accidentally bit through her tongue and burned herself and things like that because she couldn't feel it. And that's what happens with leprosy. And then that's then if you have a small wound that gets infected, you know it because your hand is throbbing. A leper wouldn't. And so that infection gets worse and can cause the amputation or or death of the fingers and things. Okay. When we come back, we'll take a look at the miracle. Luke 17, 11 to 19. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. No, it is not Thanksgiving yet, although Thanksgiving is coming. Just look around you and read the times and the season of the year. But our gospel reading for the 14th Sunday after Trinity gives us a uh, very, very much Thanksgiving flavor and a Thanksgiving feel. We have Luke 17, 11 to 19, the healing of the 10 lepers. So we have uh, in our first segment, we talked about the city of Jerusalem and the significance of Jerusalem, especially in the Gospel of Luke, the uh, journey that Jesus took between Samaria and Galilee. We talked quite a bit about leprosy and the clean and unclean laws and what's going on here. And uh, we want to get to the actual miracle itself. Vicar, what did these 10 lepers cry out to Jesus. They called out to him and they said, have mercy on us. Okay. Have mercy on us. And what, what title did they give him? Master Lord. Jesus 
And then the ESV, it says, Master, have mercy on us. Pastor, is it significant that they called him Jesus Master and then asked him for mercy? It, it is uh, probably pretty significant. Um, the, the word that they use here uh, is, is not the word Lord, as it often is used, it's not courier, it's uh, a pistata, which is more of a military term in in a way, uh, a chief, a commander, a master in that regard. And so it is important. It signifies that they believe Jesus is a person with authority, but it's not quite yet to the point where they understand what that authority ultimately is, if that makes sense. So it's not a hey you sort of word, but it's not quite uh, the Lord sort of word. Uh, It is also in the Gospel of Luke where this whole question of authority comes up. The previous chapter, Luke 16, with regard to the parable of the dishonest manager or the unfaithful steward, who has the authority to do what? And I think I think that is an interesting uh, term, an interesting title. They uh, they acknowledge Jesus as Jesus. What does that mean? Well, he's a master. He has authority, and have mercy on us. Um, what kind of mercy? Um, food, money. Well. Those things are wonderful when you have leprosy and you're completely ostracized. You have no way to make money. You're cut off from your family. Uh, there's there's a lot of ways that that mercy can manifest itself. Um, exactly what they had on their mind when they cried out for mercy, we don't know. But we know how Jesus responded. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests that seems like such an odd request. Pastor, why is that important that Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest? Well, uh, it's exactly what the scriptures themselves uh, tell lepers to do when they are cleansed, that they must go show themselves to the priest to be examined, to make sure that they actually are uh, leprosy-free. And this is uh, the idea that takes place, I think, you know, back in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, uh, off the top of my head, where these rules and regulations are laid out. And so when Jesus is telling them to go back to see the priests, he's doing two things. Number one, do the physical activity that um, is required of you when you are cleansed from your leprosy. And that, in a way, is telling them as well that you are going to be cleansed of your leprosy. But it also, I think, and this is more significant, it's driving them back to the scriptures because Jesus is referencing what the scriptures teach. And so Jesus himself is always bringing people back to the word. uh, And I think that's important for us to remember as well, that we need to be back in the word as well. Am I correct in understanding that only the priest could make an official declaration that they were cleansed? Correct. Okay. So uh, all of this is implied, and as they were going, they were cleansed. Okay, so we got 10 lepers. All 10 of them are cleansed. What happens next, Vicar? Only one of them turns back and goes back to Jesus. He realizes that he was healed. He turns back and he praises God, and he goes and falls at Jesus' feet and gives him thanks for what Christ has done for him. Okay, so the ten are all cleansed. 
One uh, is recorded, turned back, praising God. He knew that this healing came from God, that this was a miraculous healing. He turned back, praising God. He fell on his feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Okay. Um, are we to Are we to take anything from this? Uh, with regard to our Thanksgiving, you know, only 10% of the people in our world are truly thankful. Uh, we shouldn't uh, look down on people uh, who are different from us because uh, they're more godly than others. H- how are we to understand this, Pastor? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say any of those things, and I think what kind of <laughs> I gives hope, it, I hope not. Um, <laughs> what gives it away is the fact that this man falls on his face praising God at the feet of Jesus. This is an act of worship, uh, and that's really key because uh, acts of worship always follow person having faith, um, true acts of worship, that is. And so we, we know that this man now has come to faith in Jesus Christ, acknowledging that he is God in the flesh as he falls down to worship and thanks, give thanksgiving to God at the feet of Jesus. And so he understands the reality of what's just happened. And, um, you know, we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that out of 10 people who have received blessings from the Lord, one of them comes to faith and actually understands the reality of what's happened. We see the same thing in our world right now. All sorts of people receive gifts from God, uh, but they don't acknowledge that God is the, the true God. They don't believe that he's actually done the things that he's done, and they definitely don't act like it appropriately by attending worship and uh, receiving the gifts and word and sacrament. But this man gets it and understands, and I think we're learning here then faith isn't just limited to the Jewish people. Salvation isn't just limited to the Jewish people, and um, it's open for even Samaritans, and we could take a step further and say Gentiles like us. And an act of faith, then, when you have faith, is to worship, which is to go back to Jesus, to fall on your face at his feet, and to give him thanks for all the blessings and gifts that he gives. That's really a key part of being a Christian, and one can't really be a Christian unless one is doing that. And I'm not making that an action we have to do to save ourselves. It's responsory. It's completely in response to the gifts given. It is. Uh, it's very, very telling also that he falls at Jesus' feet. He prostrates himself. He gives thanks to God. He is acknowledging that Jesus is God. There are several places in Scripture where angels or human beings um, are attempted to be worshipped, and they say, no, worship is for God alone. Jesus allows this worship to take place because he is true God. And so the lepers who acknowledge uh, he's a man of authority, one of them now acknowledges he is the son of God, God in the flesh, and, uh, and has come to faith. So uh, Jesus says, we're not ten clans, we're the other nine. Was no one re- found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? That tends to be the place where most people put their focus. You should be more thankful for all the things that you have. Is that bad or wrong, Pastor? Well, um, in a sense, yes, because um, when we turn giving thanks into a good work that we must accomplish to be saved, then we're taking the the uh, salvation work away from Christ our Lord. And if you look closely, the reason we talk about giving thanks is because we usually have this text, not thanksgiving. Uh, what he really does is he... Uh, 
falls on his face, giving him thanks and praising God with a loud voice. And Jesus' words are, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? The thing that Jesus and the man are really focusing on is the reality that this guy is worshiping. It's not uh, thanksgiving only, but it is worship that's happening. And that's the key here for us as well, not just mere thanksgiving like, hey, thanks for uh, you know the five bucks to fill up with gas or thanks for the donut or whatever. This is actually worship, which is even more than just mere thanksgiving. The, uh, the two things that I want to try to cover yet in the uh, brief time that we have left here, Pastor, um, go and show yourself to the priest. Was the Samaritan leper who was healed, was he actually following the words of Jesus because Jesus is our great high priest? Say it one more time. Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. Yes. And he turns and gives praise to Jesus. Yes. And Jesus, we know from Scripture, is our great high priest. In a sense, is he following the command of Jesus? He is exactly following the command of Jesus. The word that has been preached into his ear has borne fruit through the work of the Holy Spirit in that he understands who the true priest is. And this is why earlier I mentioned that uh, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, which is the place of the prophets, the priests, and the king. Uh, and Jesus fulfills all three of those offices within himself. The uh, last thing, Pastor, we touched on this early. Uh, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Um, faith healing, how do, how do we as Lutheran Christians who believe what the Bible says, how do we understand this, these miraculous healings, uh, this comment about your faith has made you well? How do we tie all that in together, uh, especially in contrast to some of the silliness we see in our world? We got about two minutes. Yeah, um, th these are really important words that Jesus says here. Uh, he says, rise, that's how we have it translated here for us in the English, and the word in the Greek is anastas, which uh, is that's also the, resurrection the word for word. resurrection. Uh, and he says, your faith uh, has saved you, and the, and the word for saved there uh, is sesokin, and I think in our English we have it made you well. This is a... Uh, perfect active indicative verb sozo, which means saved or healed. Uh, but he's saying much more than just your faith has made your disease go away. He's saying your faith has given you eternity uh, and you'll arise from the dead on the last day uh, and go about your business then. And so Jesus is teaching us all these things here and it's very important for us to understand those words. Uh, and in a sense, Jesus says those same words to us here and now. We're not any different than this leper who's been cleansed. Christ has uh, saved us uh, in this being, I love the the perfect tense, a past action with present abiding results, right? Uh, he has saved us, meaning we are saved now and we are going forward as well. It has happened. And the Anastas there, we also will raise from the dead on the last day. Death is not our end, and we actually don't live as if it is. We live as if we will be resurrected to live with God forever in his kingdom, no matter how we die, or no matter if we get leprosy, or if we get hit by a car, or if we die of old age at the nursing home. We will be raised, and we have been saved by Jesus. It's amazing, too, that the life of a Christian is a life that moves from death to life. That is our daily drowning and 
dying and rising, and it is God's guarantee for us on the last day. We need to take a short break proclaiming the one. When we come back, we'll look at Proverbs 4, 10 to 23. Don't change that dial. to K-N-N-A-L-P, 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. God, our maker, doth provide. Welcome back to At Home. Oh, golly, I'm getting my programs all mixed up. Lord, have mercy. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We're looking at the readings for the 14th Sunday after Trinity. The Old Testament reading for Trinity 14, Proverbs 4, 10 to 23. Vicar? Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of, of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Okay, here we go. Uh, Pastor, maybe it's just me. These passages from Proverbs are some of the ones that are the most difficult for me because you have two or three verses that have one point and then it seems to move on to another point and then two or three verses later it seems to move on to a third point and then two or three verses later you're right back at your first point that you were and it's really really hard for me to take a look at a text like this that's 12 verses long and to see the the thought flow, the thought progression like you would in a regular narrative. We have this circular reasoning thing, which is which is a, a staple of the genre of wisdom literature, which is what Proverbs is. So uh, is it just me, or is this, is this a challenge to preach and teach from the book of Proverbs? Um, I think it definitely can be a challenge, uh, but we always have to keep in the back of our minds the whole foundation for the book of Proverbs and uh, the idea of wisdom, uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so 
all these proverbs, which are wisdom literature, uh, have that echoing in the background, the fear of the Lord or faith or first commandment keeping. And so that helps us to kind of get a grip on things and to kind of keep our feet on solid ground as we study a difficult book like Proverbs. Okay, so we have, as as often in Scripture, uh, often in the Psalms and Proverbs, we have this distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, that is brought out very, very clear in verse, uh, I believe it's verse 18. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Verse 19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So we have this parallel between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and that parallel is illustrated by the way of the righteous is light, the way of the wicked is dark or darkness. Um, Pastor, teach us uh, that light, darkness, evil, wicked thing that's going on. What is... uh, what is God, the Holy Spirit, teaching us here? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as Christians, we're really helpful uh, in understanding this, that we have the book of John as well that talks about the idea of light and darkness very clearly, that uh, Jesus is the light of the world and uh, darkness cannot overcome or understand him. And this is that whole idea that God is the source of light, the creator of light. This also is in Genesis as well. And, and I love the idea that the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And uh, it reminds me, I've, I've been working my way through St. Augustine's uh, confessions right now. And um, he talks about this in his life. And, and the, the great picture is, is that the more he hears God's word in church, and the more that he reads the books of Scripture on his own, the more and more he understands and really comes to the Christian faith. And that's taught very clearly in the scriptures as well. For example, Romans 10, we always quote that, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is the idea that if we're going to be upright or in the faith or saved, uh, we're going to be so by hearing God's word. Whereas if we don't hear God's word, we're lost in the dark and we're wandering around. And, uh, you know, as any person who... um, has gone camping and tried to find something in the dark, uh, even in the woods in the dark is worse. It's very, very dark, can't see where you're going, you run into things, you stub your toe, you hit branches. Um, that's the picture that is being proclaimed and put forward here. And the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness then is the word of God in which the Holy Spirit works and creates faith. So really the distinction here is faith and unbelief or faith and no faith. Correct. And when we look at our gospel reading in Luke 17, rather than focusing on who was thankful and who was not faithful, it appears that the focus there that it that makes the connection with Uh, Proverbs 4 and Luke 17 is the connection between faith and no faith. Correct. Okay. And that's going to be played out in our epistle reading as well. Yes. And so here we have the beauty of uh, the pericope system. Now, Pastor, you talked about faith comes by hearing and the importance of hearing. This is this is brought out again beautifully in this uh, section, Proverbs four ten to twenty three, verse ten. Hear, my son, and accept my words. And then down in verse twenty, my son, 
Be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Uh, Pastor, who is talking and who is the son? Help, help put things into perspective here with regard to who is giving the command to hear and be attentive and whose words are we supposed to be listening to and who is this son that they keep referencing? Yeah, um, there's several ways we can take it. First, at the uh, basic level of the text, this is, of course, written by King Solomon, who is the wisest man uh, ever to live, according to the scriptures. And when he's speaking then to his son, he can mean, yes, his immediate uh, son, but he also can mean all of those who are subject to him, uh, in the same sense that uh, in the Hebrew language, um, the Israelites are not just Israelites, but instead they are the sons of Israel. That's the way that the language works for the Hebrews. And so he can be speaking to anyone who's subject to him. And I think this is a good picture of how teaching the faith actually should happen in that regard in the family. Uh, a father or an authority figure within the family's job is to teach the faith, to give the word so that the children and those who listen can receive it. Uh, we also can take it a step further and understand that Solomon is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so when he writes down these things, he is, uh, in a, one sense, the voice of God itself uh, through the Holy Spirit working in him. And so the Son then could be us as um, people living in this creation, as created beings of God, hearing the word and the voice of God himself as he teaches it uh, through both his servants uh, in the office of the ministry, through his servants who are fathers or head of household, through his servants. Uh, we would even be able to go so far as to say even the government should be making sure God's word is preached and proclaimed and taught. Um, now, that's where we get a little sticky in our world today, but that that whole idea that God working through means to make sure his word is preached and taught to the people uh, living under his authority. There are many similarities in this section, Proverbs 4, 10 to 23, that remind me of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, uh, and so on. But uh, it, it's almost like an expanded commentary, this section, on Psalm 1. The verse that keeps sticking out in my mind is verse 13, Pastor. And, uh, you know, there, there are many wonderful verses in the Proverbs, many wonderful verses, uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that are worthy of memorization. Verse 13 seems to be one of those. Keep hold of the instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. What instruction are we talking about? Are we talking about the, the uh, little owner's manual that you get when you get your car? Are we talking about uh, the uh, warranty book or the warranty card when you get your new vacuum cleaner? Are we talking about the uh, di diagram on how to put that difficult piece together so that if it breaks, you can figure out where to get it broken? What's the instruction? 
Boy, I never knew those things had those because I, I guess I've never looked at them. Yeah, well, you're you're just young enough to know that everything's on the computer, so you throw all that stuff away. <laughs> uh, it's talking about uh, the instruction, again, being God's Word, which uh, instructs our faith by proclaiming the law and the gospel to us and the Holy Spirit always working in that Word to increase our faith and knowledge in uh, the one true God. And, and so... We ought to hold on to that, and and I think the word instruction is really good as well because when you take instruction in something, it's not just a one-and-done thing, but you continue and continue and continue to learn something. So if you're going to take instruction in golf, right, uh, and that's the one they have all the – in Omaha, I always drive by it on 680, that huge golf instruction place with the, the big net and the driving range. I avoid Omaha, so I, can, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, so there's one of those there. How does it work? You go there and you hit 100 balls, and someone tells you about your swing and what you're doing well and what you're doing wrongly, and you keep on doing it until you improve and eventually get better at it, right? That's instruction. And so we ought to take instruction in God's Word, which means we don't just read the Bible once and say, you know, uh, well, that was enough and I'll be good. We need to always be studying it and learning it in Scripture, in church, where it is expounded in sermons and uh, in hymns and in uh, the liturgy of the church, in Bible study. Uh, I know that's a fairly new idea the way we do it now, but we go to Bible study to hear God's Word and to get into the details, nitty-gritty about it, and it is hard, and it is a challenge, and yet that's what we're called to do by God and his word, and that's how we're called to live as Christians. Anybody that's ever learned a foreign language realizes how difficult it is to learn that foreign language, and how easy it is to let that foreign language go if you don't use it and practice and use it and practice and i think that's a a great picture for us here like you said uh, golf foreign language um, the people of god need to be in the word of god at home individually with your family and especially as the book of hebrews reminds us do not forsake the gathering together of the saints guard her verse 13 for she is your life and we need to act like it. Verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One, 14th Sunday after Trinity. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNA. LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. First the blade, and then the ear, then the full corn shall appear. I love that hymn, especially this time of the year when it's uh, sweet corn time, and the corn is uh, just now starting to turn brown. The harvest is going to be coming here uh, very, very quickly. Rarely do we remember to give thanks to God for the gifts that he has showered down upon us. In our gospel reading for this 14th Sunday after Trinity, we have that theme of thanksgiving, but it's not the real major theme. It is that theme between 
the distinction of faith and unbelief. That was brought out very, very clearly in our Old Testament reading, Proverbs 4, 10 to 23. And now practical application of that in our epistle reading, Galatians 5, 16 to 24. Vicar? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay, wonderful words from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 24. It's clear that we see this distinction between faith and unfaith, and the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses some marvelous word pictures for us. So he says, but I say, walk, walk. I want to focus on that word just a little bit, Pastor walk. What does Paul mean when he says walk? Um, He's not talking about make sure you get your 30-minute daily exercise and walk, and when the weather's bad, go to the mall and walk. Uh, What what is he referencing here by that term walk? Yeah, um, this word in the the Greek is uh, peripateo, and this word carries a lot of baggage with it because it's a philosophical word um, dating back to the uh, the time of the philosophers in Athens and whatnot. And uh, the way that the uh, philosophers worked is that they would walk around in the city, and with they'd have a group of followers or disciples that went with them who would be learning from them, and they would talk about all sorts of different things and figure out what was right and good and beautiful uh, by using logic and reason and things like that. And this is the same word then that is being used here. And and so that's telling us that we are, this walk is a, not just a walk to the mall or walk around the block. It is a walk in terms of faith, kind of like we talked about in our Old Testament lesson, the idea of being in the Word. Uh, walk by the Spirit means uh, through the work of the Spirit in the Word and the sacrament, live a Christian life and be a Christian and exist as a Christian and learn about what being a Christian is, and that's what he's going to go into here in a little bit in discussing this. So we're not just talking about outward actions. We're talking about our mind, our heart, our body, our soul, every aspect of the Christian life. Is that right? It is. In fact, I'd say the outward things must necessarily follow the faith inside. It's not an independent thing like you can control yourself and make yourself 
do these things unless everything is right on the inside. Jesus says the same thing. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. We... Before we get into this distinction between the spirit and the flesh, the works of the spirit, the works of the flesh, um, Paul says here that if you are led by the spirit, now as we are on our walk, our life, our Christian walk, we are led by the spirit and we're led by the flesh if we uh, are walking by the by the desires of the flesh that picture of being led rather than us in the lead but being led i mean is this like a a horse that you have a stick with a carrot out there and he's walking toward the carrot and he's carrying you along is that the kind of leading that we're talking about here or is this a more profound kind of a thing I think, again, the the picture and the idea is that peripatetic uh, philosopher from the ancient world, but maybe a good picture in understanding that for us as Christians would be Jesus, uh, who led the disciples around uh, Israel for three years. He never beat them or made them come. He didn't uh, hold a carrot in front of them and say, you know, if you follow me, then I'm going to give you gold or something like that. He spoke a word, and the word uh, created joy and faith within the disciples so that they wanted to follow uh, Jesus in this this teaching. And Paul's using that same concept and idea here. We walk by the Spirit, which means we're led by the Spirit, which means the word comes into our ears, creates faith. And as a result, we want to go to church, and we make ourselves go to church in faith. That's the fruit that we bear. In the book of Galatians, Paul talks a lot, uh, especially in the earlier chapters, about being saved by grace through faith in contradiction to being saved by following the works of the law, the moral law. And we have this word law. In verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And then again in verse 23, at the end of his list of the fruits of the Spirit, he says, against such things there is no law. How is that a continuation of the theme that Paul has been teaching all the way through the book of Galatians? Well, when we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, when we are given the Holy Spirit uh, so that our heart looks to Jesus, we see that the law has been fulfilled by our Lord, and therefore we are free to live appropriately with our everyday life. We're free to show love towards God and fervent care and mercy and love towards our neighbor, and we naturally do that. And... um, you know, it's not perfect. We still have the war with the two natures going on within each one of us, and yet the Christian does uh, good works without being beaten to. There's a good discussion about this in the formula of Concord that talks a lot about it. Once we go back to the law, all of a sudden uh, faith is missing again out of out of the uh, picture, and that's, that's the danger that we always are running. We want to make sure we keep people in the Christian faith, um, living the Christian life as a result of the faith of God bearing fruit within them. And I'm, I'm not saying it very well, but turn to your formula of concord. It does a great job. 
Okay. Um, Pastor, we have a laundry list of naughty things, and we have a laundry list of good things. Now, it is clear the Christian walk should follow the fruits of the Spirit, and if you follow the, the desires of your flesh, you're going to be doing the uh, naughty things that are here, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Um, all of us, all Christians, maybe not every one of these things, but we've been tempted to them. We've broken these laws. Uh, we, we've sinned against God and against ourselves, against our neighbors, against our own bodies. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, I hear that list, and uh, I'm guilty. I've done it. So is there any hope for me, or is it uh, three strikes and you're out kind of a thing? Well, um, we have to be very careful talking about this because we never want to say that these things that are in the naughty list are okay and that you uh, just have a free, you know, uh, get, out, get out of jail free card from Jesus. Uh, that's not the way it works. These things are bad. And the reason that they're bad is because these open sins kill faith. And uh, that is a very serious thing we need to watch out for, and that's why we should beware these things. And yet at the same time, the reality is is that Christ has died once for all sins, that he has purchased and won us not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, innocent suffering, and death. All our sin, every last one of them, uh, those we have done in the past, those we are doing right now, those we will do in the future, are forgiven. And we are saved by faith in this, which God works in us by the Holy Spirit. Now, when we have that faith, uh, we are less likely to do those sins, and we need to be aware of that, um, and that's good. And yet, we still might do them, but we, we don't look to our own works for our salvation as if we've not done the things well enough or we've done too many naughty things. We look to Jesus alone for our salvation. Amen. And that's why that last verse is so important. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's a reference to baptism, Galatians 2.20, where we daily die and drown with our sins, passions, lust, and evil desires and rise forth a new creation in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Vicar, would you bring things to a close by praying the collect of the day for the 14th Sunday after Trinity? Let us pray. O Lord, keep your church with your perpetual mercy, and because of our frailty we cannot but fall. Keep us ever by your help from all things hurtful, and lead us to all things profitable to our salvation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele, we serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship this Sunday. We gather at 8 and 1030 with family Bible study for all ages in between. We also worship each Wednesday evening at 630. We'd love to have you with us as we... Uh, hear, read, preach, and sing about these very texts that you heard Sunday morning when you get up. Read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastors, but most of all, just go to church. Hear the Word of God. God's blessings are for you today and always. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll see you again next week. God's richest blessings in Christ. <laughs>